Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. We're happy today to be joined with sports psychologist Peter Hayrell. Peter played ice hockey professionally in Austria, and he's now a sports psychologist for the USOC. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get into our topic of beach partnerships, can you explain to us or let us know how you went from a pro hockey player to a sports psychologist? <laughs> well, uh, when I was a professional athlete, um, I was always very curious about performance and, and just sort of you know observing myself. There were times when I was playing better than other times. Uh, and more often than not, uh, what explained the difference, what was what was going on between my ears. Uh, so I was just curious to learn more about that. And as I came towards the end of my career, I had to decide, you know, what comes next. And because I always had this fascination with psychology and understanding performance, um, and I had a degree in sports science at that point in time, uh, I decided to go back to school and study applied sports psychology. Cool. Sounds good. Well, we're glad you're doing that and glad you're able to help us out. Um, our topic today is on the extensive study you did on partnerships in for Beach Volleyball Olympians. Can you start out by telling us uh, how the study was done? Well, first of all, I didn't do the study. Um, I, I came up with the original idea, um, but then I asked uh, my colleagues at the University of Denver to conduct the study. So the study was conducted by Dr. Artur Potswadowski and his research team. Uh, all I did basically was, was come up with the original idea and then uh, connect the research team uh, with, with um, beach volleyball players. Cool. And I guess just uh, like why were you interested in a study like this? What was the value that you saw? Well, um, so, so I, w- I was watching the Beijing Olympic Games and there was a... In the round of 16, uh, the, the Americans, Phil Dahlhauser and Todd Rogers, played um, a Swiss team, uh, Martin Latziger and, and Jan Schneider. That's a famous match. It's a famous match, right? Um, and uh, obviously the Americans, being I think the world champion at the time, they were the big favorites, right? And, and they won the first set. Uh, kind of Everything was going according to plan then. Uh, but then they lost the second set. Uh, the Swiss really came to life, I think, if I remember correctly. I think they won it 23-21. And then, very surprisingly, in the third set, uh, the Swiss were up 6 nothing. Yeah. Um, and uh, Karch Kirai at the time was commentating on NBC and made the, made the comment that not now, you know, Todd and Phil, they can't get frustrated with each other. Kind of, I think, highlighting and illuminating the importance now of the partnership and uh, judging by the result they didn't get frustrated because they came back and ending up winning that third set and then obviously went, went on to win the gold medal eventually um but what's striking to me was watching that uh, that game was that um the uh, martin latziga the swiss player became more and more irate with his young partner and it seemed obvious that that wasn't helping his young teammate mm-hmm. at that critical juncture in the match. Uh, so it just 
back the question from a research perspective, you know, how important is, is the quality of the partnership to the outcome of performance? And I wasn't aware of any studies in this area. I mean, certainly cohesion in general has been studied quite a bit in sports psychology, you know, dating all the way back to 1968 uh, when the German Hans Link uh, studied the German rowing eight. And one of the things that he found at the time was uh, that those German rowers uh, actually did not like each other, mm. but yet they were still, still very successful. And that kind of led to the separation between task and social cohesion. And I've looked at this as a, as a two-dimensional construct, right? So on the one hand, you can get along. On the other hand, you, gotta have, you have to have the same goals. Um, and then some of the other research with team sports kind of focused more on a circular relationship between cohesion and success so that cohesion helps success. Success also helps cohesion. Uh, but I wasn't aware of anything, you know, being published in that area uh, with regards to uh, dual partnerships like beach volleyball. So I was curious, can we look at this, you know, from an empirical perspective and, and what is it we can learn perhaps from some of the best teams in the world? And so then what did the researchers do? Did they talk to uh, past Olympians? How was it done? Uh, yes, basically the researchers did a, what's called a qualitative study by interviewing uh, highly successful Olympic beach volleyball players. That's a good way to learn, I guess. <laughs> learn from the best. Well, so exactly. Then... <laughs> exactly. You, le you learn from the best, right? Yeah. Uh, from the people who actually, I guess, know what it's like to be at that level. Yeah, it's weird that you didn't call me, Peter. I don't know what happened there. If you guys lost my number. Or... <laughs> Quite possible, yes. Yeah, it must have been. must have been. So, <laughs> so let's might, get into... It might be in the next study. Oh, that, I hope so. I'd love to be. So then let's get into the kind of the beginning of a partnership. So when, when these Olympic, these really successful teams were, were forming a part, partnership, how important was it for them to have like similar personality types? Um, so I think the, the research team captured this under the heading of compatibility. Um, and and th there needs to be, I guess, some initial chemistry as you form the partnership. Uh, but then surprisingly, you don't need to have the same personality. So personality can be quite different, uh, but what you need to share is a common philosophy and a common motivation. Um, so having conversations about what your goals are, but almost more important, what you value, what's important to you on this journey um, has to happen and has to be in alignment uh, or, uh, around those, those values. So sharing the same philosophy of, of what this journey means to you, what goals you, you, you want to pursue, and how you want to be on this journey. So particularly, you know, with regards to, let's say, the amount of preparation you put in, right? How hard you work towards your goals uh, plays a big role in, in, in being compatible. And there has to be an initial spark, but then uh, the research showed this is almost always a developmental process, so a process of maturation. Um, and this is something that you have to keep working on and kind of refining as you go along. So then the researchers found that there was, I think, six total essential um, basically values for good partnerships. You mentioned compatibility is one of them, I think commitment. Yes. Um, the other four, what were they, complementarity, co-orientation, yep. and closeness. Can you go into some of the other ones? 
Yes. Yeah, so, well, I guess first of all, uh, I think so you have to, you have those five elements you mentioned, right? And and sort of sort of picture those uh, in in a bubble of, of of an interdependent relationship. So one thing the athlete said that in beach volleyball, um, you can't do it alone. So mm-hmm. so you and this is a bit different than other sports, really, right? Um, you you need to rely on your partner to pass you the ball. And, and, and nothing happens unless you have that interdependence. Um, and then again, so that sort of environmental factor plays into it. And then there's this process of a growth of awareness on an interpersonal level, technically, tactically, but also personally. So where you understand uh, what your partner needs technically and tactically from you. And sort of you have to grow through this process as you go forward in the partnership. Mm. And I think, you know, what speaks to me there, uh, this is something that you chip away at. It's not something you have or you don't have, but something that you cultivate. So how do you cultivate it? Or how do they cultivate it? Well, again, this first first step coming back to compatibility piece was what's our philosophy? What's your philosophy? What's my philosophy? uh, And does that actually match? So, so that's a big, so, big part. Right. So, so if one partner is really into working hard all the time, doing all the recovery activities, you know, doing strength and conditioning, and the other partner is kind of like happy-go-lucky, okay, it's not a shared philosophy. And then the partnership will not last uh, in the end because then once you hit the, the rough patches, which inevitably you will hit, if you don't have that shared philosophy, you can't navigate those stormy waters. And so Peter, let's say my partner, we find that our, our values don't align. Um, like what are our options at that point? Is it just break up is the best thing to do? Well, that's a great question, right? So I think in any relationship, you kind of have uh, sort of four options. One is to end the relationship and leave it. Uh, one is uh, to accept uh, what you can change and take charge of what we can change, which is ways of controlling your own actions. Um, one aspect is 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 uh, to uh, accept what you cannot change with regards to what your partner does. So sort of be open to whatever the emotions are and work with those skillfully. And then one aspect is, is you stay in a relationship and make it worse. So, so, so you have to sort of figure out, okay, you know, almost like a cost benefit analysis, right? Is it worthwhile for me to stay in a relationship? All right. And if the answer is yes, uh, then can we communicate around values, um, become more clear what each of the partner values, and uh, find common ground? And if you don't find common ground, uh, does it actually make sense to continue or not? Got it. And you mentioned in the study that uh, self-awareness was an important part of the process. Can you, uh, like, what sort of things should we be clear about in ourselves? Uh, well, it's, it's self-awareness, but also awareness of your partner. So, for example, um, let's, let's come back to, you know, our, our situation with, with you know, uh, Schneider and, and Latziger, right? So, so Latziger was the older partner. He needs to be aware of how his behavior will impact his partner's performance, right? So if I become irate with my partner and then I see my partner shutting down and I don't notice that, right? 
then I lack a fundamental awareness of myself and my actions on my partner, but also how I impact him. Uh, so as a teammate and as you go through competitions, you want to learn and understand how your behavior influences your partner's ability to maintain focus and intensity. You have to understand how your own behavior uh, can become an advantage or a disadvantage in your partner's performance. And then once I'm aware of, of how my behavior impacts my partner, I can regulate my behavior. And do you find that uh, sometimes there's a difference between what a partner or what somebody says their values are and what they actually do? Because I assume that at our level, everybody says they value working hard and being prepared. But I guess, like, what do you, well, yeah, what happens when you come up to that and it, I don't know, it's something they tell you, but then it's not really acting out? Well, I think uh, then the next step is, right, as you saw, clarify values. The next step then is, okay, so what are the specific actions that actually align with these values? So let's say I, I value hard work, all right? So what does that look like? So we as a partnership want to have a conversation about that. And then when a partner does not live those values, okay, then again, the conversation is, okay, well, there seems to be a discrepancy, right? Um, between what, what we talk about and what we're actually doing. So why is that happening? Why am I sort of removing myself from my values? Sometimes there might be a lack of understanding what it takes to be successful. Sometimes, you know, sometimes something else gets in the way. So again, I want to have at least a conversation and try to understand. Um, and then again, as a partnership, I get to make those decisions of, hey, we don't seem to be on the same page here. Did you, I want to go back to that uh, third set with with Phil and Todd. You're, you were saying there's there was behaviors that the Swiss team uh, were doing that were detrimental. Are, are there any behaviors that stood out to you that the Americans were doing that were helpful? Well, one thing I think you see a lot in beach volleyball is is um, is physical touching, right? Mm -hmm. uh, more so than in any other sport, especially and, especially John. <laughs> <laughs> well, John is wise then, right? Because, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Because the reason, the psychological reason for, for that physical contact is, is, is to, um, to reinforce connection, to reinforce togetherness, right? As well as to stay in the present moment. So I think one thing, one thing that you can look for is, is when a team is struggling, uh, do those behavioral routines, those gestures, can you still see those, right? And again, as an athlete, that's something I control, okay? So, so even things might not go well, and, and I might sort of experience the urge to turn away from my partner, then I can make these deliberate attempts and deliberate actions to turn towards my partner. And that's actually very interesting because in, in, in marriage therapy, there's this marriage researcher named John Gottman who sort of researched couples for the last 50 years. Um, and uh, he says that his research shows that couples who stay together, um, what they do is, is one partner will, will uh, put a bit for connection out there, 
right? So simple things like coming home from work and saying, how was your day? And then if your partner turns towards that bit and connects emotionally by responding, right? That's a sign of a healthy relationship. Whereas if the partner turns away, ignores the bit, or turns against the bit, right? Um, then that's a sign of, of, a, of a relationship that's in trouble. So for me, those physical gestures that you see on the court uh, can be interpreted as, as this partnership is, is strong, they're intact, they can weather storms. Yeah, it definitely takes a, um, a real team to connect after being down 6-0 in the third set of an Olympic match. So I'm sure they yes. did some of those things. Particularly of a match you were supposed to win, right? Right, right. There's, there's extra pressure, extra, extra expectation as the favorite. Uh, and where it can be so easy to, at some point in time, blame your partner uh, for the lack of success. Right. And I think, again, one thing that we see in this research is there's a sense of shared responsibility um, and a desire, a desire to actually make your partner look good. Mm. Do you, do you know if the uh, these elite teams that spend time off the court, kind of discussing and outlining their their values, not not just like small talk, but really deep discussions? Uh, yes. So, so again, that comes forward in the research. They they do spend time talking about their values, talking about their philosophy, um, talking about their preparation. They talk about that sometimes they train in different different geographical locations, right? And then having the trust that, that the teammate is, is putting forth the work um, and perhaps having ways to communicate what it is, is you do. Um, and again, that communication is huge. And Peter, with this study, what advantages do you see with having a long-term partnership? Like what's the incentive to stay together? Well, I think uh, one of the quotes from the study was that, that – um, if you have this sort of, you know, emotional investment in each other, um, you actually get to a, a place where you can weather the storms, you can weather conflict. And, and again, coming back to, say, the research on, on marriage, right? Every marriage, every relationship has conflict. It's unavoidable, okay? Um, so, you know, the saying is it's easy to fall in love. It's much harder to be in love. So there's the initial attraction, right? But then you got to do the work to actually stay together. And part of that work is, is, is learning to manage conflict. So when you have a long-term partnership, um, you, you perhaps had a chance to learn to navigate conflict, learn to weather the storms, learn to weather bad performances, because there will be bad performances. And rather than chomping ship and looking at, you know, what's the next best partner for me? Because uh, when you do that, you're obviously of this ability to develop that skill of weathering a storm and sticking together. Uh, it sounds like you're looking at conflict as a very different thing than most people do. I think most people try to avoid it. So you're saying we should be looking for those opportunities. Uh, yes, yes. That sounds scary. Well, it, it, is, it is, right? Because often we have this mistaken assumption that... that uh, when we're in a partnership and relationship that we will not have conflict. And if we have conflict, that means there's something wrong with, with the partnership. Uh, but I'm saying is again, what we know, what we know from couples is conflict is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. 
and again, like, I don't know if you guys are married, right? But for anybody who's, who has been married for any amount of time, uh, you will have conflicts with your partner. That's not the problem. The problem is when you're convinced that you shouldn't be having conflicts. But if you know you don't have conflicts, then, then, then you, can, you can start to uh, learn to, to um, skillfully, skillfully resolve the conflict through communication, coming back to values, turning towards each other, right? Peter, I haven't had a lot of conflict with my partners, but I have had a lot of pent-up anger. <laughs> so I should, I should be voicing that more than holding it in and being mad at Brady. Well, I'm, I'm curious, curious what makes you say that. <laughs> um, no, I just, I played with, I think I played with a partner for a long time where t- towards the end, maybe our, our values weren't aligned, um, but we we're still good friends. And so I think I just, uh, yeah, maybe we could have benefited from some more open discussions. Oh, <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps. And part of that discussion, you know, would entail of, of sharing your feelings, Without without uh, blaming the partner, so there, there's a big difference between I am angry and you piss me off. Okay, when I use the, uh, the I am angry, I own the emotion. All right, and when I say you piss me off, uh, usually all that does is make my partner defensive. So I want to go um, back into kind of being on the court and what what effective communication looks like. So I don't know if there's anything to study about, like what these elite teams did during timeouts or uh, the way they communicated, kind of when the ball is in play, stuff like that. Uh, I think an interesting piece for me there in the study was uh, a desire for uh, a shared decision-making style. I think one thing you see often in beach volleyball, a younger and an older partner, right? And the older partner sort of takes on this sort of leadership role. Uh, but my understanding from these successful partnerships is, is even if there was an age difference, there was a great appreciation for uh, a shared leadership decision-making style. So whether sort of the partners treat each other as equal partners rather than one, one athlete calling all the shots. So sorry to cut you off. I feel like it's really common for people to say, oh, there's got to be a leader and a follower. So that, that was not the case. That was not the case, no. Huh. So, so leadership comes from both players. Leadership comes from both players, yes. In a mature relationship. Um, and I guess using beach volleyball as an example, let's say I, uh, you're an older player playing with a younger player. What's some ways that you can kind of – pass on some leadership responsibilities to that younger player who, you know, might not obviously have your experience? Um, well, I think uh, one is just to deliberately create space for that younger player to find a voice. And that might be as simple as, hey, what's, what's, what are your thoughts? What do you think? Right? So just uh, an invitation to be willing to listen rather than telling somebody what to do all the time. And because like, because one thing a young player does is they tend to see things with fresh eyes, and even as a sort of older, more mature player, I can honor that perspective by asking for it to be shared. Yeah, I like that, especially in beach volleyball where there's a blocker and a defender, kind of two different positions. Maybe they see something that that you wouldn't. 
Exactly, exactly. And it's possible for either player at times to get stuck in their own head, right? And your partner can see that and can help you get unstuck. That was part one. We'll be back next week with more from Peter Habril. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at Coach Your Brain or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coach Your Brains Out. See you next week. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Here's part two of our conversation with Dr. Peter Habril on successful partnerships. So let's say we are like struggling and getting stuck in your own head or just, you know, you're in a rut. I guess, what are some good things that a partner should be saying when things aren't going well to get you back on track? Well, I think you want to have a conversation ahead of time of, A, what happens to you when it gets stuck in your head? And what is it you want your partner to do in that moment? And as you have that conversation, basically what you're doing is you give your partner permission uh, to rescue you, right? And again, that's going to be very individual, uh, but it might be as simple as, as, hey, you know, are you stuck in your head? Just asking that question. Or it could be sharing a keyword, focused on XYZ, whatever XYZ is. Or, you know, if there's time, take a breath. That's good advice. So then did you, uh, did you know, or was there anything in the study w- about how, you know, the teams would respond to losses, I guess, um, yeah, even just post-match or just the, the following weeks, kind of, yeah, their, their responses to adversity and things like that. I think one of the things that stood out for me is, is, is did we learn something? Hmm. So even though we lost, and, and the business is to win, right, but we lost, uh, is there something we learned, something that's going to make us better? And if that's the case, then, then we can sort of, you know, hang our head on that and, and work with that. And that makes sense why they'd, they'd be so good, that they'd, they'd even learn after challenging situations. Yes, yes. Okay, well, we um, actually have one more question on partnerships, and then we have a couple of just random questions to, to fire at you. Um, I don't know how much you followed the college NCA beach volleyball um, game. I do but, not uh, follow that game. Okay. I'll give you just a little background. So, so in, in college, um, I, I coach at, at uh, Loyola Marymount out of college, and the coaches pick the partnerships. Uh, I, I guess it doesn't have to be that way. The players could too. But generally, it seems like um, the coaches are in charge of, hey, you play with you and you play with you, and you have to form five different teams. So I, I guess I'm just wondering if you had advice for coaches if, or for people running a program on, you know, how would you go about that selection of putting people together? What sort of things would you be doing? Uh, well, I think uh, I would look for, uh, you know, I think one thing they found in the study was this notion of complementarity, right? So how do you complement each other uh, with your skill set um, as, as a first step? And then again, I would want to make sure I have a conversation with the players about their own values, how they want to be as an athlete, what's important to them. And then through that conversation, come up with a shared value set for the partnership and then tie that shared value set 
for the partnership into specific goals and actions um, uh, with regards to, you know, again, how you prepare, what you do, what your teams are and so forth. Uh, and then again, I go on with, you know, uh, how do we deal with obstacles on the court? How do we communicate with each other? Uh, again, like we said before, is is when I, when I struggle on the court, how can you help me? When you struggle, how can I help you? Uh, when you struggle, how do I make things worse? When I struggle, how do you make things worse? So just having op- open conversations uh, along those lines and, and then using, you know, using the experience of competition to keep learning about each other and keep learning about how to do things better and, again, stay focused and have the right intensity and the right connection with your partner as you go through these these matches. So I, I really would sort of work on spending time communicating uh, with, with, these, with, the, with, with these two athletes. And what do you think about, um, I know people, I think there's the personality test called, the, I think it's the Igetsi, or doing like something like that, trying to match people through something like uh, some sort of survey. Yeah. <laughs> you think information like that helps? Um, potentially it can help. Uh, there's a bit of a danger when you use tests like that is that it's going to solve all your problems, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, the danger is it sort of puts you into a fixed category uh, as opposed to it's good to know uh, your personality traits, um, but you have to understand that the situation always trumps personality. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is 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 I may be an introvert personality-wise, but that doesn't mean I can't give a great talk to a group of people if that's what the situation requires. Same thing on the court, right? I may be an introverted person, but that doesn't mean on the court I can't be very verbal. All that means that if I'm sort of introverted, I'm going to be verbal on the court, is and then I need sort of my time away and sort of recharge the batteries by myself rather than you know being being the um, the highlight of the party in the evening and entertaining everybody. And there are no sort of personality traits that make you specifically successful at a given task. So I'll be I'll be careful with, with relying too much on a test like that. And Peter, one of the components that you mentioned was uh, co-orientation. Uh, like, what does that mean? How do we use that? Uh, the co-orientation has to do with with um, the sense of can we come together as one unit and function as one unit, and that means you know what are our goals, right? Um, what are our values? Are we aligned on that? Do we see things the same way? Uh, does um, do we have a common philosophy of, of what this partnership is all, is all about? Cool. Great. Thanks for clearing that up. And yeah, I guess just to close, we have a few random questions. Um, I guess not team oriented, but just kind of while you're on, pick your brain a yeah. little. Um, yeah. So let's say I'm struggling. Or let's make it realistic. Let's say John is struggling. Yeah, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> um, what kind of self-talk could he be giving himself um, to kind of get out of that? Uh, what should his inner voice sound like? <laughs> um, 
you kind of opened up a little bit of can of worms here for me um, <laughs> in the sense of this could be a very long conversation um, because and this may come as a surprise is I don't really care what John would say to himself. Mm -hmm. I care that he would notice what the inner voice is saying and what that inner voice is doing to his ability to focus. So for, for me, attention is the currency of performance, not thoughts and not feelings. And with that, not the particular type of self-talk. So is John, John wasting his time when he's like, you're really good. You're the best. You're good looking and stuff like that. Like positive. Yes. Yes. He's wasting his time. Even if they're true. Even if they're true. <laughs> because what, what John really needs to be after is, is to focus on the task at hand. And in beach volleyball, that task at hand is always external. So I would want John to focus on seeing the ball. You know, if you receive serve, see what the wrist of the server does, for example, right? So being really tuned into the appropriate anchors of attention. And the more I'm concerned with my internal dialogue, the more, the more likely I am to not be focused on those appropriate anchors of attention. And so the, the internal dialogue that um, just kind of comes without us controlling it, that you, you mentioned kind of just not being judgmental of that, just kind of noticing it? Precisely, yes. The internal dialogue basically is kind of like the radio running in the background. Okay? The radio is on, but I don't have to pay attention to it. And the radio is going to say whatever it wants to say. That's, that's, that's how, how the mind works. The mind works as a thought-producing factory. And, and so, you, you, can, you can test that very easily, right? And I do, sometimes I do this with the athletes. I just pull out a stopwatch, and I give the task of, of don't have any thoughts once I hit start on the stopwatch. Guess what's going to happen? Within seconds, everybody has thoughts. Even the, I gave them the command not to have thoughts, Right. So what I'm trying to show is, is we have fairly little control over that thought-producing factory. But what we, what we do control is our ability to notice when thoughts get in the way, and we do control our ability to direct our attention. Which is why I say I don't care about your thoughts or your feelings. I care about that you notice what thoughts and feelings are present, and I care that you have the ability to put your attention where it needs to be for the given task at hand. So what are some of those ways to get yourself to be more present? I know the, the breath is a big one. Are there there's some other ones that you like? Uh, well, the breath is, is a big one. It's sort of in, in, in traditional mindfulness practice, you know, we use the breath as an anchor of attention because it's always there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that's just really good practice, right? That's what we usually refer to as formal practice. But I, I like the notion of informal practice too is, is so when you're on the court, uh, you know, what is it you see right now? And one thing I think you want to see is the ball, right? So can I focus on the ball? And, and Karch Kirai has this great quote in his book uh, back in the 90s, uh, something about the Sandman. I don't, I don't remember the exact title. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing the quote here right now. 
but he says he would focus so intensely on the ball that he could see through the ball to the end of the ball, so to speak, right? <laughs> so, he, so, so he was very deliberate in choosing a visual anchor of attention, right? So where do I put my eyes right now and actually see what needs to be seen? And when I do that, it's so much harder for that thinking mind to get in the way. And how, how often is that going on? Is that, I mean, there's got to be times in between plays where you kind of let it go and then do you reset once the whistle blows or how do you decide to focus that intently? Exactly. Exactly. I think that's where, where you kind of want to have sort of behavioral routines in place, right? So, so when the ball is dead, uh, you can do whatever you want really, right? And you can let your mind wander. Um, and, you know, you can dust off the sand, you can hug each other, you can high-five each other, whatever, right? And then as the whistle blows, then you sort of dial back in and you narrow that focus. Mm. And you deliberately, again, take an external focus of attention. Cool. And I, I got a question on mindset going into a match. Um, I guess what, what, what's your view of, like, what our expectations should be? Should... Um or just kind of any kind of thing like that, like going into a match, what should we be thinking about? Should we, you mentioned like the whole Phil and Todd having the, being the favorites. Should it change based on who we're playing? That kind of stuff. Um, again, um, I don't care what you think. I care that you notice what it is you're thinking. So let's say you're the favorite, right? Um, when you're the favorite, the big danger is, that you get trapped in expectations of how the match should go, okay? Uh, so we, you know, we're the favorite, so we should win against opponent X. And then you, you, you know, you lose a set, and then the reality no longer matches the expectation. And then the big risk there is that, you know, the the mind starts spinning out of control, and then it's more and more thinking. So you more and more get trapped in your own thoughts rather than, again, focusing on the task at hand and approaching each point with the right intensity. Um, if you're the underdog, right, and you think you have no chance against these, these opponents, um, and if you're not aware of those thoughts, guess what's going to happen? You will have no chance, right? Because the moment you fall behind, you sort of fold the tent. Right. But if you understand, okay, here's a thought, we have no chance, all right? And you can say, well, that's just thoughts. Let's play and focus on this point, just this point, and focus on our strategy and our execution, and then we see what happens. And then we do the same thing for the next point, and then the next point, and the next point, and so forth, right? Hi, I've got so another... Go, yeah, oh, so sorry, go ahead. Maybe, maybe uh, an athlete example to, to hammer this point home. Mm-hmm. Um, Rafael Nadal says, what I battle hardest in a tennis match is the quiet devices within, to shut everything out but the contest itself, to concentrate every atom of my being on the point I'm playing. If I made a mistake on the prior point, let it go. Should a thought of victory suggest itself, crush it, he says. So to me, that's, that's like so spot on, right? What I battle hardest in a tennis match is the quieter voice inside my head. So he says he understands there'll be thoughts popping into his head. His job is to quiet those voices down by concentrating every atom of his being on the point he's playing. So he understands the importance of attention, the importance of concentration, right? 
after a point, if he makes, makes a mistake, he wants to let it go. So he understands he doesn't want to be caught up in the past. And then, this is the really beautiful part, through a thought of victory suggests itself, crush it, it says. Well, why do you want to crush a confident thought? Well, you want to crush a confident thought because you know that thought takes you into the future towards winning and you want to be in the present. The thought about the future, about winning, is just as dangerous as getting stuck in the past. And that's kind of what, what, what I want my athletes to be after, to be aware of when the mind wanders and to have the ability to come back and focus on the present moment. Kind of takes me into what I was curious about next. And it's funny you bring up Rafael and the doll because I don't think of him, I mean, as great as he is, I don't think of him as like a confident or cocky player. He's very humble. Uh, but I was wondering, when it comes to confidence, is it is it something you need for high performance? And is it within our control even? <laughs> well, well there's two great questions. Uh, no. This, again, this will be perhaps somewhat as a surprise and maybe even controversial. No, you don't need it for high performance. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that, confidence is like a feeling complex, right? Um, but I want to separate the feeling of confidence from the action of confidence. So I can take the actions of confidence irrespective of how I feel. And truth be told, almost always the feeling comes after the action. Because so often he have to say, you know, when they win a match, this gives me confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that begs the question, well, if, if the, the, the victory gave you confidence, what happened before that? And you, you spoke of, of Nadal and, and, you know, when, 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 um, when, he, when he lost in the French Open, I think three years ago in the quarterfinals, he, he was asked whether, you know, he had doubts. And he said he was, he always has doubts. And, he, you know, he came here nine times and whatever and, and won seven, whatever. And, and every time he had doubts. And he says, doubts are good for you. Because again, you stay humble, right? You keep working hard. And then this year when he won, same topic came up. And again, he says, I have doubts all the time. In a couple of days, I'll have, to, I'll have doubts again. So again, to me, he understands how the mind works. And so he can work with it. And, and athletes often make these mistakes of thinking, I, I need to be confident. And you know, don't get me wrong, it's nice if you are. Um, but if you're not, you can skillfully work with it by understanding that, hey, these are just thoughts. And I can take the actions of confidence irrespective of how I feel. I like that. <laughs> yeah, Peter, I really appreciate your insights on this. Uh, I have one more, uh, one more question about this. <laughs> it just kind of made me think about it. Um, I know you mentioned values uh, kind of over goals. Um, yes. But I kind of wondered where you thought about goals. We had a, a, one guest on the podcast wasn't a big fan of goals. Uh, he thought they were kind of like a wish list of things people want rather than – I guess, kind of day-to-day what you're doing. Um, is it important to have goals as motivation or kind of where do you see the value there? Uh, what's your opinion? Um, well, well, let me first sort of separate values from goals, right? Uh, goals are a destination, okay? Uh, so once you get there, you can check it off. You're done with it. Values are more like a direction. It's not something you can check off. So... Uh, choose a non-sport example, right? My goal might be to get married 
So, you know, once I have a spouse and I sign the papers and, you know, I can check it off and done with it. Um, but uh, if I if I value being a loving partner in that marriage, um, then I have to carry myself a certain way day in and day out. I can never check it off, right? Um, so if I, if, I, if I value hard work as an athlete, I can live that value every day. And again, that value asks to be lived every day. Uh, whereas the goal might be to win an Olympic medal, right? I get there, I can check it off, I'm done with it. Uh, the value never stops. And, and where the value is so helpful is, again, once I'm clear on it, once I understand it, once I can articulate it, uh, the value can trump the emotion in the moment. So I might, you know, wake up in the morning and not feel like it, all right? And so the momentary emotional state, they'll come and go. Uh, but if, if, if the emotion drives the behavior, I'm going to be in trouble, as opposed to, uh, you know, might not feel like it, but I value hard work. This is who I am. This is what I do. Then I will do the workout or I will do the recovery work, right? Whatever it is. Um, so, so I think it's just so, so important to clarify the values and have that conversation with oneself and with a partner. Uh, but then coming back to the goals, uh, I think the goals, they do have a motivating function. Um, and I want to make a separation between in what we call in sports psychology, outcome goals and, and process goals. The outcome goals are sort of future oriented and the process goals are more of what happens right now in the moment, right? And, and the closer I get to a competition um, or, or, or let's say Olympic Games, my goal is to win the gold medal, uh, whatever, right? The closer I get to that competition, the more I want to separate myself from that goal and just sort of focus on the process because that goal always is in the future so it, it always has a danger of taking me away from the present moment and getting me caught up in the judgmental mindsets so i want to be careful with that great peter this uh, is if you, want, if you want an example uh, for me one of the best examples w- w- was in 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 sochi at 2014 olympic games uh the slalom skier michaela schifrin 18 year old phenom won the world championships the year before, right? And again, this is quotes from the media here. Uh, she talking about the race in Sochi. She was the big favorite to win the slalom. Uh, she was in the lead after the first run. They have two runs. She gets to go last in that second run. As she's skiing down the course, the thought pops into her head, I'm about to win the gold medal. At first sight, that's an awesome thought, right? It's full of confidence, super optimistic, great thought to have but as she has that thought she loses focus and almost wipes out of course right um but she's so skilled she recognizes here is thinking come back and pay attention to skiing okay and she's able to do that so save save the mistake get it on the next gate ski on the course and win the gold medal so so the, the outcome win the gold medal almost got in the way is what i'm trying to say right but she recognized that and came back to focusing on the process. Yeah, I'm sure she was really confident when she was thinking she was going to win a gold medal, and that didn't necessarily lead to a, a great outcome. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Peter. I really appreciate you coming on. This is going to be an episode for sure that I'll re-listen to a couple of times. A lot of, a lot of great stuff in this. All yeah, right. Peter. This is awesome. No 
Yeah, thanks so much. This was really fun. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and next time we'll uh, we'll be in the study. Billy and I are gonna <laughs> yeah. get good enough. That's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> After we learned from you. Yeah, we won't we won't send this out to any of our competitors though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of Coach Your Brains Out. If you enjoy the show, please write us a review. And follow us on Twitter at Coach Your Brain or Facebook.com slash Coach Your Brains Out.